Welcome to Life After Service. This is the audio-only version of this month's episode. You can watch now the original video documentary on YouTube, youtube.com slash podcast. Find out more on our website. All details in the episode description. This documentary episode features Glenn Kolomitz. You need to have that, um, that transition piece at least um, somewhere in the back of your mind. I, I think you, you can't really... Um, be in defence for the long haul, which I, which I was, um, not having uh, an exit strategy. It sounds negative, but not having a, a you know, thought about what you're going to do when you do get out. All around the country, Australians sign up and put their lives on the line to do their part to protect the nation and its interests. But when the day comes to hang up their uniform for the last time, it's the end of one chapter and the beginning of the next. In this series, we talk to some of our veterans about their life after service. Glenn Kolomitz served in the Royal Australian Air Force and the Australian Army, as well as the Royal Australian Navy cadets when he was young. Glenn has been an aircraft technician, a military police officer, and a legal officer with the Special Operations Task Group. In the civilian world, he studied law, works with New South Wales Police, and in politics. He's done a lot of pro bono legal aid for veterans and now runs his maritime law practice. Angus Horden caught up with Glenn in his home on the south coast of New South Wales. It's lovely to see you again. Thanks for having me again, Angus. We wanted to talk today about something different. You've spent all this time in the military. We want to talk about how your life after military has developed, mm. life after service. Glenn, can you take us back to where you were in Afghanistan and then mm. how all that finished? and now how you've left the military and you're prospering in a legal environment. Yeah, I deployed to Afghanistan um, as the legal officer with a special operations task group. So um, two rotations, the first rotation was with a reserve uh, commando company during what they call the non-fighting season, so the, the winter season. Um, and the second rotation was with a squadron of SAS and a company of, uh, of regular army commandos. Uh, during the fighting season, and uh, it, was, it was a really good, very demanding rotation, but a very good, uh, very good uh, rotation in terms of experience and, uh, and my own personal development. Glenn, a lot of guys have gone and served, and mm. you've been amongst the best of the guys serving mm. at the pointy end of the spear, as, as is referred to. Mm. How did you find stepping away from that great height of work and service mm. and coming back into civilian life? Look, I came back uh, and worked as a military prosecutor for a couple of years before I got out, so um, straight into Canberra prosecuting, um, which was a, a high-intensity workload, caseload as well, uh, and pretty complex cases. Then I got out, so uh, end of 2012, start of 2013. And I have to say, um, I found going from really high operational tempo and a really high uh, prosecutorial tempo to outside life, I found it pretty demanding, to be honest. Uh, we had um, a brand new... Uh, baby. In fact, I think we had two by then. Um, and we moved, had to move house uh, from Canberra to here on the coast. So all those little issues, they sort of add up. And it, it can be, in my case, it, it, was, uh, it was a big a big step, a big leap. 
I think you were fortunate also in that Emma, as a mm. doctor, mm. was working. You had an income yeah. coming into the family because a lot of your work mm. you weren't getting paid for. Yeah, that's right. I, I made a conscious, well, Emma and I made a conscious decision to, for me to do exclusively veterans pro bono work. And, uh, and I'll say part of that was to, to put back. Um, we should put back. I've had the benefit of a lot of good opportunities in, in both the military and in the police. So putting back uh, some of what I've been given over, over many years, but also I think a, a sense of obligation to these, to these blokes. Uh, most of my clients back then uh, were former or serving special operations blokes. And uh, having seen them work and seen the demands on them, uh, I really ha felt a need, a, a personal need to, to sort of help them out. And it, as it turned out, it ended up being a very, a very demanding um, uh, role to play. Uh, and Emma supported me enormously, as you say. Uh, she had the income coming in and uh, as, as a doctor, and so I could do I was fortunate to be able to go and, and do that work. Um, and you know, I think it, we have an obligation as professionals to, to do that. We, we have a pro bono obligation, and I was fortunate to be able to, to uh, commit my pro bono obligation to an organisation, to a group of people who, I, who I'd worked with and who I respect. And Glenn, how long did you do that work for? Uh, a few years. So I started the moment I got out in 2013. Um, I think I, I finished in about 2017. Um, and I, I really had to finish, I have to say. It was, a, it was a, a enormous, uh, you can imagine, it was, a, it was an enormous um, pressure. And uh, as much as I wanted to do pro bono, it, it's quite unsustainable in the long run. And it also impacts on, on well, impacted on my mental health. I found that uh, constantly telling um, these stories, and there's some pretty horrendous stories, uh, you can imagine, arising, you know, people's mental health um, arising from operations, which then turns into criminality or, or whatever. Um, telling these stories over and over to magistrates and judges took its toll, and so I really needed to, uh, to step back from that for my own mental health and for my family. Uh, I'll just give you an example. Uh, I appeared for a few guys in Wagga, uh, a couple of ex-Special Forces guys, and we got good outcomes, good results, for very good results for them, but driving home from Wagga, I was crying uh, in the car. That, that sort of pressure, it, it's not sustainable, and I needed to step, step aside from that. I mean, you wouldn't have been in a position because the information was sensitive mm. um, that you could actually share it perhaps with Emma or indeed other people, so you'd yeah. just be bottling this up yeah. and sadly seeing the worst of mm. how these great guys had gone and served. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as a result of their service, mm. they come home and they have all these adverse effects. Yeah. And there weren't the systems then that there are now right. to an extent. And, um, and legally, there, there wasn't any consideration as veterans. Mm. Um, they were just being prosecuted under the regular system yeah. as if yeah. um, they were criminals in many cases. Absolutely. And um, that, that leads to a few other points, to be honest. The, we have a good regime in New South, a good mental health diversion regime in New South Wales, where somebody with mental health issues who is caught up in the criminal justice system can be diverted out of the system and into treatment. Um, we, I think, I ran two hundred and seven. Well, we, Mick Bainbridge and I, ran two hundred and seven cases. I think over over two or three, over three years, um, all mental health diversions, so criminal cases, um, and we had of those two hundred and five were diverted. The other two got off outright. Nobody went to jail. And I think importantly, zero recidivism. So nobody reoffended, which tells me that we had these guys who, they were all men, who due to their service and their mental health, they, they were caught up in the criminal justice system. Um, once that was all resolved, they were back on the rails and uh, no, no more offending. So that's, uh, that's good outcomes for them. 
uh, and, and good good use of the system, good use of that diversionary system for their benefit. And, and to your point, a couple of hundred families yeah. saved. Yeah. You, you know, they yeah. didn't become two hundred casualties. That's right. And yeah. and all those families and and. Sadly, you know, mm. the wives, the husbands, etc., who are mm. affected by, and the children who are affected. Mm. You mentioned Mick Bainbridge. Can you yeah. tell us who this guy is? Because he's well known to us. <laughs> Mick's my best mate. He, he is a, just the, the salt of the earth. He's a former regular army commando, had multiple deployments, um, some protective security staff. He was on the counterterrorism team in, in Sydney. Um, so the, a real warfighter um, background. He um, came out of defence with, with mental health concerns um, and defence and then Veterans Affairs put him through a, a what's called a long transition program where he studied law full time, um, got himself admitted as a, as a lawyer in the last uh, 18 months or so, or last two years or so, and um, now has his own practice in Wollongong called Operational Legal Australia, if I can, if I can plug, the, plug the firm. It's a good now, firm. now, you mentored Mick because yeah. he basically came out of the military, he had to fight the system to yeah. You know, his transition was a lot harder than yours. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. But at least he had you as a friend mm. and a mentor to help. Mm. And he wasn't a lawyer, but he became a lawyer. Mm. In fact, I believe the system tried to discourage him from being a yeah, lawyer. True. And to the man's credit, he stood up. And so his transition after service was mm. a lot harder, but mm. equally the harder he has worked, mm. the greater the result he has created. You found that Mick has really blossomed and his transition has really come full circle where he's doing so well now. Absolutely, amazing, amazing turnaround. And I've said this before, Mick, um, when he first got out and came to me for help with his own um, cases, his own you know, issues with Veterans Affairs and with Defence, um, he, he was struggling. He was definitely struggling. And to see the man now, uh, you, you'd never, it's not the same person. We have a highly strategic, very intelligent, uh, commercially focused lawyer as a director in his own firm um, who is out there growing the business and in uh, marketing his background and his skills in the corporate sector and at the same time putting back uh, into the veteran space. So knowing what mixed work is mm. and your assistance in that capacity, tell us about what you're specialising in now. I've gone off on a different track actually. I found, um, as I say, the pro bono veterans work wasn't sustainable and uh, I can still contribute to that. Uh, and I do, but it, it's not the amount that I was doing before. Um, I got myself ticketed a, a few commercial maritime tickets, so skipper's ticket and engineering tickets and a few other bits and ship security officer ticket, a few, a few bits and pieces. And uh, I've started a multidisciplinary uh, maritime law firm and a maritime surveying uh, and security consultant, maritime security um, consulting firm. So uh, a different trajectory uh, all over, but that's that's been pretty fascinating, and and it's been good for my mental health, to be honest. I think um, being entirely focused on veterans' issues, uh, it, it's it's taxing. It's a hard space to work in, and now I can get out there on ships, and I don't wear suits and ties. I wear high vis gear and do surveys, and you know, hang hang around with with uh, ships crews and <laughs> work through issues. Real, real people. Yeah, real people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I love the water. Yeah. So, so Glenn, <laughs> this is going back to your roots because yeah. you finished school at the school certificate level at yeah. the year 10. Yeah. You originally got on a trawler, so yeah. you started off at the sea. Yeah. And yes, you went back to school and you matriculated and you got your degrees mm. and you became um, the lawyer you are today. Mm. But you've always had this love of the sea, so mm. the sea has actually helped your reconciliation with your life, that you mm. find a greater peace being back in the sea and your transition out of the military has mm. helped now 
mm. in this new field of work. Mm. And you're working with slavery issues and yeah, yeah. That's um, you're right about the the sea piece. I, I think I, sh I should have been a, a navy stoker in hindsight, but but I wasn't. Um, but yeah, you know, I do love the sea, and I love that whole uh, the whole maritime space and the maritime engineering space. To be honest, I, I I was running a charter out of Kaima for a while, an old an old charter, um, helping helping out the uh, the owner, and um, I spent more time down in the engineering spaces than I did at the helm. I think just keeping this old timber charter going. But but um, great uh, great gig and. Um, and you're right. I've um, I've now moved into this this other space. Uh, the the, uh, the modern slavery on shipping is a really good piece um, that came to my attention by the Maritime Union, the MUA. Um, they were out, I was asked to help them uh, address a few ships that were sitting offshore with some real, you know, slavery related practices, uh, foreign flagships, um, which were coming into Australian territorial waters or ports. So I got involved in that pro bono. And that then uh, uh, gravitated to me doing submissions to the government about um, in more focus on shipping in like the shipping supply chain in modern slavery, um, because it's a big it's a big focus. Most Australian businesses and all the big businesses have shipping in their supply chain somewhere, and if there's modern slavery happening on these foreign flag ships where it's very hard to monitor, um, that should be addressed at the government and big and corporate. Um, levels. So I made submissions to the to the government on that, and I'm now um, on a, a committee. So a panel of um, of people. It's called the uh, the implementation and monitoring panel on modern slavery on the national action plan for modern slavery. It's, it's pro bono, but it's um it's a good thing to be putting back. I think. Um, so Glenn, yeah. how does that work actually happen? Um, often I was working with a lady, Sister Mary Lay, who is uh, with Stella Maris, a Catholic um, seafarers welfare organisation, and uh, and she and the Maritime Union uh, contacted me and said, um, you know, can you give us a bit of legal support in this space? Um, so I started working with Sister Mary and she, she'd go on these ships and, uh, and minister, you know, pastoral care to, to any of the crew that, that uh, needed you know, support. And a lot of these crews are Filipino, so Catholic, quite devout Catholic. And in, in so doing, Sister Mary would, uh, would look at the conditions and talk to the crew and then, if necessary, come back and file a report with, um, with AMSA, the Maritime Safety Authority, to then have a look at these conditions on board. So I started doing that with, um, with her and uh, I also, you know, like I say, I worked through some of the, some of the other stuff with the MUA um, and, you know, we've had some pretty good results. So the, the Maritime Safety Authority, it's their job under port state control to get on, on these ships and if, if there is slavery, they can, they can detain the ship and make sure that... Um, that those issues are fixed up before they release the ship. So the, the shipping companies that then can cost them a fortune if the ship's detained. So I can come in and help with that and say, well, look, this ship needs to be detained. Um, let's, let's detain it and get these problems fixed. So is this a state juri uh, jurisdiction? No, it's, it's uh, Commonwealth, yeah. And your, your work with these people, um, mm. have you actually stopped ships, you know, leaving port because they haven't addressed certain issues or? We've had, um, uh, AMSA has actually resolved more of the issues um, that we've been involved in, but but more recently I, I had some peripheral involvement in getting a, a bunch of Burmese um, seafarers off these ships and home. They'd been on these ships for up to two years, um, and a lot of that was down to COVID, but a lot of it also was down to the shipping companies not doing the right thing. So they were on the ship for a couple of years, uh, no, shore, no shore leave, um, they had some of their wages cut back enormously because the company said, well, you're not doing anything, so we're going to cut your wage. Um, they'd made them sign renew contracts. And one of the terms of the contracts, a couple we saw, was to stay on board until COVID goes away. 
what what does that mean? <laughs> you know, so the conditions were pretty horrendous. And I also discovered some of these um, these seafarers from the Philippines and other other um, other countries. Um, they were in like a bonded labour arrangement where they'd pay for their job, mm. go on board the ship, and then have to pay back the loan that they were given to to get the job on the ship. So they were paid pretty abysmally anyway, and then they're paying back this loan to get the job. That's disgraceful, and that's um, it's this hidden slavery. It's they're at sea, they're they're you know foreign nationals on foreign you know, flag of convenience ships. It's a real um, a real hidden vector of modern slavery. Glenn, following your career from early days in Navy cadets and then mm -hmm. into the Air Force and then into the Army. Um, and the military police uh, and the police service. I mean, mm. you've had a bit of a moral compass all your life to mm. pursue the mm. right thing. And here you mm. are obviously pursuing that with law. So mm. where you did your pro bono work for the right reasons and then that created work. Mm. Here you are, you've done your pro bono work and now there's work involved in this. Yeah. You, you do tend to jump around with some things, but you also do have a real intent to see the right thing being done wherever you go. Mm, mm. And you're a bit of a sucker for a cause. Yeah, you know, like so. if Sister Mary calls you for a good cause, you're yeah. there. Mm. Um, and even though there's not a bucket, it, you certainly mm, see mm. the need. Do you find that your balance now is more sustainable, that you can make enough commercial work yeah. while still being able to do the pro bono work? That's a really good point. Um, I did some pro bono work for um, involving Ruby Princess. Um, I acted for one of the one of the officers when Ruby Princess was alongside here. Um, I was her legal advisor in the the criminal, the biosecurity, and um, the coronial investigation. Um, and that was pro bono on behalf of her her union, the Nautilus International, so a London-based union. But as a result of that, um, I've I've been they flicked me some work, some. Um, some pretty good cases, like a marine pollution case on the Great Barrier Reef involving another cruise ship, actually representing the captain. So, some good paying work. So, I'm a bit of an even Stephen in that in that regard. You know, you put something in, you get something back. Yeah, good on you for saying that. And I think yeah. for a lot of people today, if you're transitioning out of the service, mm. and a lot of people will try and set up their own business. Mm. Mm. Um, that acknowledgement that you've got to do some pro bono work yeah. and in life, you know, you get back what you give. Yeah. And you've been an excellent example of how that model can work. Mm. So if you look back to your time in the military and, and really I, I, I sort of see a bit of a pinnacle of you in your legal operations with mm. the commandos and special forces and the SAS in Afghanistan, mm. um, how do you see your work today sort of fighting for these people and still relate to the strengths that you obtained in Afghanistan when you were serving the country? Mm. Well, I think the strengths go back further than that. Um, I was, I've been really blessed in both my military and my policing career. Um, the military gave me my year 12. I studied full-time. Um, I got a commission as a result of that. Um, it's paid for a couple of my postgraduate degrees um, and the police paid for my undergraduate law degree. So they put me through that. So I've been- But all, all with service. All with service. Oh yeah, yeah, in, yeah. all in the process of serving and the, the return time afterwards, obviously. But, but um, so I've been blessed in that regard. Um, and I think um, that's all added to the mosaic. And it, as you say, it reached the pinnacle deploying with SOTG um, to Afghanistan. So I, I think all of that makes up, makes up uh, you know, the, the total picture. And, and really as to my ability to be able to help, I think uh, both professionally and with that, that personal mindset. Um, it it uh, 
Well, as I say, it's a big picture going, going a long way back mm. to my digger days. Glenn, I mean, what literally haven't you done in the military? You've been mm. in all services, mm. you know, Navy, Air Force, predominantly Army. Mm. You've been from trades and mechanics into commissions and law. Mm. Um, I mean, I look at you and, and we've spoken to many veterans. Mm. I really feel you hold such a remarkable balance of service abroad, locally, mm -hmm. in all three services, in all disciplines. I mean, what, what really has the military and, and a defence career done for you? Look, I, I um, as I say, I've been, I was blessed. I was blessed. And it's not all, it's not all roses. Like, uh, you know, you have your ups and downs in defence. And I see that now as a lawyer, where I'm representing people in defence abuse cases and, and other unsavoury matters. But th that's, that's the negative side. But the vast majority of it is very positive. And uh, you know, as long as you put in, you get something out of it. The more you put in, the more you, you get. And it's, so it's, all, it's very much give and take. And you, you do work very hard during the give, very hard. But then the take is often um, you know, very beneficial. So without my year 12, without going through the, the Army year 12 at Inogra, um, I wouldn't have been commissioned. I wouldn't have started studying uh, you know, at uni. I wouldn't have got my number of degrees. Um, so you, know, you, you really you take advantage of the opportunities. But again, you, you put back in, in taking them up. So defence is, I, I think um, I'm very grateful. And my defence, I love my defence time, you know, mostly, 99% of the time. Um, and, and as I say, I'm, I'm very grateful and uh, very, very proud of my, of my, my service uh, and, and uh, you know, what I've uh, achieved and what I've received and what I've put back in. So what would you say to a young person considering a career today, mm. knowing that you have done so much in defence? Definitely join and don't let, and there's adverse media surrounding defence. We hear about the defence abuse and the rest of it and, um, you know, just Bear that in mind, don't come in with you know, rose-coloured glasses, but certainly if you want to join defence and you want to take advantage of the opportunities, do it. And if you want to, if you want a profession, then there's opportunities to, be, to go through medicine in defence, to go through law in Navy and Air Force at least, undergrad law. Um, there all the opportunities there to get trades, a diverse range, a array of trades, and to get other you know, transferable skills that you just don't get outside. Um, and the mateship. You, know, you you meet people who are your mates for the rest of your life, and the travel, and the, tra and the travel, meet interesting people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Glenn, was there a time when you were thinking, look, I'm busy with the service. You know, I've, you know, I'm in Afghanistan or wherever I am at the mm. time, Timor, etc. Um, that you thought, gee, I have to leave the military at some stage. Did you have like this plan B at some stage? I'll get mm. out of the military and I'm going to do this. Yeah, while I was in Afghanistan, in fact, I knew I had to set myself up for outside, um, outside life. And I think you should. You, you really can't just go one night decide you're going to leave the following, you know, put your, your discharge in the following day and then go. You have to have some sort of strategy in place. So um, while I was in Afghanistan, I was a solicitor with a solicitor's practicing certificate, but I went to the bar, um, the Northern Territory bar at the time, because I could see a lot of work up there in the, in the veteran and the, and the, um, the Aboriginal communities. So... Um, I went to the bar while I was there with the intention of coming back and doing a couple more years and, and getting out. I did a few more years as a military prosecutor before I did get out. Um, but I think you need to have that, um, that transition piece at least um, somewhere in the back of your mind. I, I think you, you can't really um, be in defence for the long haul, which I, which I was, um, not having 
uh, an exit strategy. It sounds negative, but not having a, a, you know, thought about what you're going to do when you do get out. Did you find that the military were helpful in letting you transition out? Uh, I didn't take advantage of that. There's a, a lot of um, things you can get, like uh, transition assistance in terms of courses and, and financial um, assistance. I didn't take advantage of any of that. In hindsight, perhaps I should, but but I, um, I sort of wanted to get out and get on, get in there straight away and start doing this veterans work. So I, I didn't really, um, I didn't really pursue those opportunities. But they're there. Um, there. A lot of work needs to be done in the transition space, definitely, uh, a lot of work. But the opportunities are there. I know DVA and and defence, but DVA has uh, veterans affairs has um, a certain amount of funding for reskilling and retraining. And I know state governments, New South Wales particularly, have programs to reskill. Um, people. In fact, New South Wales TAFE, you, uh, veterans can do free, certain free TAFE programs with a view to, uh, to getting employment outside of defence. So the opportunities are there, but I think defence should market that more. Um, I, I know a lot of my clients have, have left and they, they weren't aware of what they could, they could take advantage of and therefore their transition was less than ideal, particularly if they're struggling. Um, and you know, most of these younger veterans, if they're struggling, don't want to be on the couch um, on, on pensions for the rest of their, of the rest of their lives. Um, and Mick, is a, Mick Bainbridge is a classic example. He didn't want to be on a pension for the rest of his life. He wanted a profession um, and he needed that bit of a hand to get there. So he had some money and some support uh, you know, through, that, through that program. But he's now out there kicking goals. And I think um, you know, if, if younger veterans are capable of reskilling, and I, I suspect the vast majority are, um, then take the opportunities and, and you know, use that to deal with the, to some extent, to deal with the mental health um, concerns. And, and we have a lot, of, a lot of cases where our guys, our clients struggled, the wheels come off, uh, we get them back on the rails, they then reskill and they're out there contributing. The guys in Wagga are a classic example. These three clients down there who were struggling and now they're making an enormous contribution to the community and the veteran space down there. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. So if we talk about transitioning, um, and look, I've been through your career and I see mm. what you've done, and you really are a bit of a pin-up guy from mm. the perspective that mm. you've done so much, you've transitioned really well, you've given back so much. I mean, really, we wanted to talk to you because we believe quite clearly that you've succeeded very well in this. Mm. Thanks. Are man. there any... No, seriously, mm. thank you. Um, and do... Do you feel there's been any, like, like I think knowing Emma, that's been a wonderful blessing mm, for you mm. that you've had that, that support. Mm. Are there any other things that you have found has really helped you in your transition out? Look, I, um, I had my own mental health struggles um, and after a long time in service, that you, you, it's fairly common to have some sort of issues. I, I, um, I was in helicopters, so we, we lost, I lost a couple of mates in helicopter crashes and, um, and that sort of came back and and then revisited me in Afghanistan where we had... Um, all, helicopters. Yeah, yeah helicopters and, and fatalities. Um, so they, they impacted on me quite adversely, I think, but uh, it's a matter of pushing through. Um, and you, you, as, as you say, I'm blessed. I have a, a loving family, a loving wife who happens to be a GP and who, who, um, who tolerates my, <laughs> my ups and downs. And financially supported, and you, financially when you supported when you restarted. Absolutely. And, and even now, if I, um, if I don't pick up briefs um, for whatever reason like I just started I've just returned to my PhD studies so I'm taking less less briefs obviously um, Emma, Emma will, will, will provide that parachute she'll she'll support me through that so so I'm, I'm blessed um, and it's not all down to me it's down to the people I had around me my wife and the opportunities and my mates 
but you also need this military can-do attitude, yeah. um, which is which is in every soldier and sailor and airman, mm. that you can accomplish what your your mission is to achieve this. Yeah. I can appreciate when you're in the military, you've got a commanding officer telling you, you mm. to do this. When you're not in the military, it's up to you to set that compass. Mm. Mm. So you've now decided to go back to the books again. Yeah. What, what, what are you studying now? Um, I started the PhD at ANU before I went to Timor um, on uh, the International Criminal Court. So the war crimes provisions, um, including command responsibility for war crimes, which is quite topical at the moment. Mm. Um, so I've, I've returned, I returned to that in the last year, um, just getting back, you know, updating my resources and getting back into that mindset. And, um, and I'm now about to launch into it uh, more formally. In other words, start writing up chapters um, and you know, get a bit more hands-on supervision from uh, you know, in that in that academic space. Um, so, and again, I've got you can probably see in the background I've got massive resources accumulated uh, over the years. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll get back into that. And I think um, not just another another credential, but you know this uh, empty credentialing that people say when you accumulate degrees, but being able to make a contribution to policy, I think, and, uh, and in an area which hasn't really been addressed and it's never been applied tangibly, uh, practically in this country. This is our first real experience with, um, with war, war crimes, you know, potential, allegedly by our own people. And the first time that we've had um, command uh, uh, responsibility looked at uh, in some way, I think. So Glenn, you're now studying this extra degree to help you with your war crimes research. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, as I say, when I started this, um, this research, uh, it was the, the PhD through ANU. Um, I was uh, just about to deploy to Timor. So it was quite impossible to finish it back then, to be honest. Multiple deployments and, uh, you know, the exigencies of military life. But it was a deep dive into Australia's war crimes provisions. So our war crimes law, um, as compared to the International Criminal Court's war crimes law, which ours is implemented from the ICC. But it was a deep dive into those laws, and that's now coming to a bit of a head with the, the current issues surrounding um, the Brereton report and, of course, post post Brereton. So, um, very relevant stuff um, to the point that that I was approached by some media outlets to give some expert advice on the um, the obstacles to these charges and the obstacles to investigations and the the sort of um, the uh, the extent that these investigations will have to go to 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 even look at charging. So uh, that's, that's been a great uh, ability uh, you know, of my, on my part to be able to contribute to that. But, but also, I think importantly, um, throughout the, the Brereton inquiry, I was, had the opportunity to assist a few um, people, being a few of these soldiers being interviewed. So they'd come to me for some advice prior to the interviews, uh, just about process and procedure and their rights and responsibilities, etc. And uh, we've, we've helped a few of those guys um, through that, and indeed, after their interviews, we've um, we've continued to maintain a legal overwatch on some of these guys, just to make sure their interests um, and their rights are being protected. Um, and you know, once once they they evolve into a a criminal investigation, if if we're required, we'll we'll keep an eye on that also. So so that's been um, I think having that background, both the investigative background and the the legal background in that war crimes um, sort of mindset. Has been, a, has been a good benefit in that regard. But I think the command responsibility, the, the evolution of this doctoral research um, will be um, interesting because we're starting to see now people looking at the chain of command saying, well, what sort of liability, what sort of culpability is there? You know, how far do we go with that? Do we investigate that? 
Um, so my research there is, it's, it's again, it's a deep dive, it's doctoral research, um, getting right down into this aspect of Australian and international law. So in your legal area, again, you're going across new ground because there mm. isn't a lot of people who have studied this and are expert in this mm. currently. So, and again, I, I see you as being in a wonderful position because unlike many, you've been in the field, you can appreciate firsthand the situation and now you're mm. studying it further at ANU, wonderful institution. Mm. Um, mm. I think that's excellent. And again, it just shows you never stop learning mm. and in your transition mm. from um, military service into civil life, you mm. keep investing in your time, which will prolong your career and your interests mm. and your contribution to society. The research is independent research. It's actually uh, not ANU now. It'll probably be finalised through Wollongong Uni because it's local and um, mm. I've got some, some very good support there. I, I might just plug somebody there, Professor Theo Farrell, who um, came from King's College. He was the head of war studies at King's College London. So, you know, there's some amazing... Wonderful resource. A wonderful resource. He wrote yeah. the book Unwinnable about Afghanistan. So this yeah. guy's right at the coalface. Yeah. And he research. lives up the street. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did some research with him recently on um, artificial intelligence, uh, so human-machine teaming in, in warfare. Um, so I was involved in some interviews with him. So we've got a good, a good little synergy happening there, and that'll be a great support for me if I can finish it through Wollongong. Um, but, but you're quite right. This will... Um, in fact, you have, you have to be interested in the subject, yes. firstly, to do doctoral. Otherwise, you just it won't, it, you won't finish it. And I'm fascinated by this stuff. Mm. I, I can't read enough of it. Yeah, um, well, your library clearly yeah, reflects that. Absolutely. Yeah. And just following some of the cases and at the ICC and, and uh, just taking this dive into it and, uh, and starting to you know, get, get my head uh, thinking in that academic space, but with a practical outcome. Yeah, and, yeah. and also with fairness as an overlay, like you know, without fear or favour, mm. based on facts. That's right. Um, giving everyone the opportunity for a fair trial. That's right. Um, I mean, that's been a hallmark characteristic of your whole career yep. when you were in the service and now you're out of the service. Yep. It's all about fairness. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, as you say, a fair trial. Glenn, if we look at your life now and, and I look at so many of our veterans, I'm really happy for you that you have really transitioned and flourished. Thanks, and, and, and I just think that your message is a great message and, and perhaps if you were to pass a message on to the guys who are currently serving, mm. who are thinking of getting out and indeed those that have just recently got out and perhaps haven't got their legs under them perhaps as well as they may like, mm. what could you say to them to encourage them? Um, I think start investigating uh, your opportunities whilst in defence before you get out to assist with your transition, um, both through defence and through um, Veterans Affairs, because there are programs and funding there available to help with the transition. And, uh, and I think Mick Bainbridge is a classic example with his long transition out of defence. They put him through uni, through a, through a law degree and a commerce degree. Um, so those sorts of opportunities are there. Take advantage of them um, and explore what's out there. Explore job opportunities while you're still in. Um, New South Wales government has some good programs. The Commonwealth has some good programs now. It's not all doom and gloom, um, but certainly think about reskilling. And I think, you know, as you've said, I've reskilled a number of, a handful of times. And continue to do so. <laughs> and continue yeah. to do so, Put yeah. on you to your credit. Um, and I think never be afraid to reskill. Mm. Uh, and, you know, people say, well, the infantry soldier, what can they do outside? They can do some amazing things outside. And we see it every day. Some of the skills that they, they take, um, but the ability to, to sell the skills, I think, is the, is the hard part. So, so work on, find people who can help you sell those skills. And at the same time, think about reskilling. 
you know, one of my um, special forces clients who had some issues, mental health issues, and had a bit of a, uh, a brush with the law, got himself a, a motor vehicle uh, mechanic, a mechanics uh, apprenticeship, and he's now swinging spanners and loving it. You know, so how good's that? Uh, the, the opportunities are there, and, the, and not for everyone, of course. Some people really they have to think about whether they're capable of, of reskilling and whether their mindset is good. But I think the vast majority can can do something else. Um, and just look what's out there and take advantage of it. And equally be accepting yeah. that perhaps if my first attempt at doing something doesn't work, it doesn't mean it's oh, all yeah. over. That's right. You know, many people, yeah. you know, struggle with the first thing, then they eventually find, you know, another thing. As I often yeah. say to people, Christ was a carpenter, yeah. that there's nothing that you can't do if you really put your mind to it. That's right. We, we had a couple of guys um, who wanted to study law, so we helped them get into law. Um, one's going great guns, one, one struggled a bit. These are special forces guys. Um, they're very smart guys, but one just realised that um, one of these guys realised the law wasn't for him. So he's looking at other things. So you're, you're quite right. You know, your, your first attempt, uh, if it doesn't, I won't even say attempt, you, your first um, uh, experience with, a, with a, new, uh, a new career or a new opportunity might not be for you. Glenn, we look forward to continuing hearing your development news. Often we turn the TV on and you might be in Canberra or you might be somewhere else at some port. But well done to you. You're a great example of how a life of service can be a very full and positive life. It certainly has had its ups and downs, but you've transitioned brilliantly. Thank you for your service and Thanks, thank mate. you again for your time. And it's lovely to hear how well you're going. Thanks very much, Angus. Appreciate it. After their chat, Glenn took Angus to Port Kembla to show him where he has been keeping busy with work lately. So Glenn, we're at Port Kembla now. Um, what are you actually doing down here? Come down and do surveys, so different types of surveys on ships. Lately it's been um, security surveys to make sure their security um, records, everything are up to speed and they're, they're complying with uh, what's called the ISPS code, the, the National Shipping and Support and Port Security Code. Yeah. Um, checking uh, what they call ISM, so um, safety management. Um, records and doing general surveys, um, so you know, some of the stability stuff and just checking checking records and uh, going on board. And, and yeah. which clients are these typically? Um, they're often, but most of the ships are foreign flagged, so Liberian, Panamanian, etc. Um, so either the company uh, that charters the, the ship or often the, um, the person in the supply chain will want these inspections done for various reasons. Um, and it's also to cover off the ship if um, the Maritime Safety Authority want to come and do um, an inspection. So we can then sell, the ship can then say, okay, we've had this inspection done by a private operator, blah, blah. And so might then go, yep, giddy up, um, sign it off. Um, it sort of covers the insurance companies too. They, they like to know that their ships, even if they aren't inspected by AMSA, it's like only 10% are inspected roughly, or 12%. Um, they, the company, insurance companies like Lloyd's can go, yep, you've been signed off um, and you've met your, met your compliance requirements, tick, yeah. When the shots crack around you, you remember the high, but it wasn't excitement, it was just terrifying. The steel tore through clothing, mud balls, trees and flesh, as I emptied my mag towards nothing at best. And as I crawled forward and I looked through me sights, I turned and saw Rowdy give a wink and a smile. He shouted with me, 